Why are Americans so divided in their politics? How do we negotiate between the masks we wear in public and our real selves? Is there a way to be active in politics without losing your soul? This week, Congressman Steve Israel and Tim Ryan on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. Hey, Dre. How are you doing? Hola. I'm good. How are you? What's going on? What's popping? What's popping? It's February. That's what's popping. I know. It's been gloomy, but you know what? I'm I'm kind of living for it. I, I, I Because of global warming, I'm loving the cold when it's cold. When exactly. It's I know. Cold. Isn't it weird? And it's, <laughs> it's, been, it's actually been like freakishly warm in Chicago. Yeah. Mm. And it's kind of scary how warm it is. It's like, oh my God, this shit is real. It is really real. So I'm yeah. enjoying like the snow. Like we recently got some snow here in New York and it feels correct for the month that we're in. Yeah. So I, I love it. I okay. love the cold for now. Okay. And then I'm looking forward to spring. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. All right. So I have a big question for you. Yeah. What's up? Persona. Okay. So, you know, this, this term persona is, it's an Etruscan word that means mask. And so in Roman times, there were these mimes who would wear these early masks when they would perform and they were called persona. And then Carl Jung comes along 2000 years later and says, oh, you know, this is a part of our egos. We adopt these persona when mm-hmm. we interface with people. So sometimes I, when I'm teaching, I adopt the professor, you know, professor persona. Of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I'm with my parents, I have the, I'm the good boy persona and all these things. <laughs> but yeah. it seems to me, and with certain types of people who spend a lot of time in the public sphere, and I'm yeah. thinking both actors and politicians, they mm-hmm. oftentimes have to spend so much time in a kind of public facing persona or a particular kind of persona yeah. that it ends up warping them. And I'm curious to hear what your experiences as an actor has been around that. Yeah, I think so for myself personally, I'm not a big time actor, but I do think I've experienced this somewhat because of my type. So I look much younger than I actually am. And there is this energy. Nobody would know that you're 78. No (laughs) one would know that I'm actually 78 (laughs) years old, (laughs) that I was born in 1946. Um, But that that I that I come off a lot younger, just my look, my voice, everything about me, the energy I give off is much younger than I actually am. And when I go in for roles that tend to be much younger, I have to put on this persona when I walk into a room, an audition room of being that younger person. Uh-huh. And I do think that that has fed into who I am in life as well. Um, people view me as having young energy, as being uh, younger in in mind and in spirit than I actually am. Um, well, I, I, have think to, I, have to, I have to confess, you know, age 15 w- was the best 23 years of my life. <laughs> so it's not just being an actor. <laughs> yeah. But like, no, but it's true. Like, I do think that like, it's definitely like this wheel that feeds itself within like my particular type. And I do see it in other actors as well. Like, especially a person that comes to mind is Lady Gaga, who creates these personas for each album that she releases, right? So in her first albums, she was like this crazy techno pop girl and she would walk around acting like this crazy techno pop girl. And I think at home, some of that probably rubbed off sure and i like i see that in multiple other actors as well how if you're told your entire career that you're one kind of person how can that not bleed into your private life right yeah yeah and you know so this is a funny thing because i've been wanting to have some uh political figures on the podcast for a long time Mm -hmm. but i've always been worried because inevitably when you talk to people who serve public office they have this public front and this face and it's hard to get past that. And mm-hmm. it's really, really hard to get past that. But for this week, I was very lucky to get and talk to two politicians who are very successful, important politicians who I think actually have a greater understanding of authenticity. Yeah. Um, 
So there's Steve Israel, who I've known for several years now. I met him in Chicago a few years ago, and we've become friends. And he's a former congressman from Long Island uh, and now does a variety of different things. He heads an institute of politics with Cornell University. He actually also runs a bookstore called Theodore's mm -hmm. Books in Oyster Bay, New York, which is where my in-laws live. Um, and so whenever I'm visiting my in-laws, I always stop into the bookstore and say hi to Steve. And Steve is just a total mensch. And not only is he just a really smart, engaging, funny guy, he is a student of stoicism and meditation, mm -hmm. and he's a very soulful person too. And now that he's no longer in Congress, it's funny, I think he's been freed of the public persona to a much greater extent. Of course. And so I, I ran into Steve last Christmas uh, when I was visiting my in-laws at his bookstore, and I told him about the podcast. He said, oh, I'd love to come on. It's great. And he said, and I want to bring on Tim Ryan. And so Tim Ryan was a longstanding congressman from Eastern Ohio, mm -hmm. and I was a big fan of Tim. He he ran for Senate in 2022 against J.D. Vance and unfortunately lost. But mm -hmm. he's also written a book on mindfulness, and he's also just a very deep-thinking person and an especially deep thinking person for somebody who holds public office and and really likes to think about mindfulness practice and also stoicism and meditation. Mm -hmm. And so it was great to have both of these guys on the podcast and to delve into this. And it's funny, as I think as you'll listen through the podcast, you can hear, I, I think Tim is still anticipating a, a, a public life. I think he's still much more in kind of the political persona. Uh, yeah. more than Steve. I think St Steve, and, and Steve will tell you these stories yeah. sort of checking it, but they're both still really thoughtful, smart, uh, perceptive guys. And we spend about the first half of our interview talking just about the state of politics, which is funny as a political scientist, I've spent so little time on this podcast talking about politics. Yeah, um, your day job. My day job. So it was fun to kind of be able to blend my day job uh, with this. And so we, we are talking about the uh, just the state of America and this sort of why we are so polarized along party and ideological lines. Um, and then I'm able to shift the conversation more to a personal questions around um, how they understand themselves and how they negotiate, uh, especially if you spend so much time in the public eye, where and how do you keep that feeling of authenticity? And that was mm -hmm. what I was really interested in exploring with them. And they gave some great answers. So I'm really pleased to offer uh, my interview with Steve Israel and Tim Ryan on Nine Questions. So Steve, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you both on. And uh, this is my first time to have two people on at one time. So um, maybe either, both of you could just speak and introduce yourselves briefly so our listeners will know which voice belongs to whom. Uh, I'm Steve Israel. It's going to be hard to get two members of Congress to actually not speak over one another. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the best we can. Steve Israel, I served in the House of Representatives for 16 years, eight terms, uh, and I'm from Long Island, New York. Um, Tim, Tim Ryan, I served in Congress for 20 years in um, Northeast Ohio and uh, represented Youngstown, Akron, very working class districts and uh, served with my buddy Steve Israel. So looking forward to being with him and being with you. We are living in an era right now with a lot of kind of polarization, to put it nicely, uh, seemingly these intractable gaps uh, in the public between what people i think most most americans identify as americans and if you talk to most people on a basis they they share core values but when it comes to politics we seem to be you know just deeply deeply divided along these party lines in a way that's oftentimes difficult to talk about across and we could start with some of your perspectives on what's going on with political polarization and and what's really happening to our country right now steve why don't you go ahead look we are uh we are fractured. We are broken in our politics. Uh, we are cleaving to, to the right and to the left. Uh, our politics are broken, and and many of our uh, political uh, leaders uh, are broken. Uh, they themselves uh, are being pulled apart. It's a function of many different things. I think this really began in 2008. We were, we were much more cohesive, uh, much more united in the United States of America. And then in 2008, something happened. There was the Great Recession. 
people became fearful. Their houses were in foreclosure. They were losing their savings accounts, their bank's accounts. Other people were getting much richer, places like Wall Street. But for most people, they felt like they were getting poorer. They began to lose their faith in institutions, whether it was Wall Street, which used to be um, deified as an institution, suddenly became equated with greed and corruption. Uh, sports, people lost their faith in sports as an institution with scandals. People lost their faith in government as an institution. People lost their faith in in religion as an institution with scandals. And that accompanied the, the rise of social media and algorithms where people's fears were being absolutely manipulated. Uh, and people were turning to their uh, their handheld devices, not for information, but for amplification of their own views. Add to that the continued uh, opinionization of cable news and no neutral source to go to, uh, and political gerrymandering, and you have a mix of intolerance, of fear, uh, of continued breakdown in social cohesion, uh, and that uh, that's lingering today. Can we heal? Well, you can always heal, but you really have to take some affirmative steps, and you have to do some soul-searching as a nation, and each of us individually need to do some soul-searching to figure out what that healing looks like and what's the path. And I've, I've always thought um, and it's become more and more apparent in the last few years, really politics is downstream of culture. And so all the things that Steve kind of itemized, you know, around sports and religion and the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church and the, you know, all of these different scandals that we had that has reduced trust. It's now pervasive in the culture. And, you know, you even saw it recently, you know, yesterday, you know, you can't even go to a, a a Super Bowl party, you know, rally for your own, your own team and, and without, you know, feeling like you can't be safe there anymore. And so this is all in the culture. And I think that the problem with politics now is, you know, especially on the democratic side, they think, well, we're going to bring a 10 point plan to this issue around X, Y, or Z, and that's going to be the solution. And it just, it's not been working. It doesn't stick. It's not resonating. And, you know, I think some of the anger on both the extremes, too, is is like coming from and I know you wrote about this a little bit, you know, uh, in your book, when you start talking about you know magical thinking or conspiracies, I, I was just really fascinated how you articulated that that comes from a lot of insecurity, a lot of uncertainty, emotional instability, all of these things give rise to, you know, and so I've always felt that 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 is grounded in economic issues that, you know, the more economically insecure you are, the more you're willing to be a part of an extreme movement or extreme position because of your insecurity. And I think um, that's kind of where we are very deep in our culture. Well, let me ask you both, since you spend a lot of time interfacing with voters, it seems to be one of the paradoxes of politics, and particularly for people who are on the left, and they say, well, okay, it's our economic insecurities which are driving a lot of anxieties uh, that are out there and a lot of fear, but those economic insecurities oftentimes don't get reflected in sort of the modern, you know, the issues that are animating political discourse at any moment. And so we get preoccupied with wokeism or we get preoccupied with you know, wearing masks or, you know, border security is a more complicated issue, but we, we oftentimes get, comp, you know, preoccupied with a lot of issues, or I should say our politics are preoccupied with issues that are completely divorced with the the economic transitions that are actually happening in this country. And I'm, I'm curious, when you talk to voters, how do they reconcile between what they're hearing in the town square being online or the media or whatever in terms of what politics is about as opposed to what they're actually experiencing? Well, I'll give you a sense of uh, just how fractured we are and how irreconcilable that is. Uh, for the first time in a very long time, there is a very significant difference between uh, economic data and how people feel. You go out and ask, and, and by the way, you know, the first law of politics is you have to meet voters where they are, not where the data is. And so in my community, Oyster Bay, New York, I, I now, I left Congress, I now own a little independent bookstore in Oyster Bay. People come into my bookstore and they tell me that inflation is in double digits. 
They tell me that unemployment has never been higher. They tell me that we're in a recession. They tell me that migrants are flooding our streets. And that is actually significantly different than what the the reality, what the data tells us. It tells us that actually unemployment is very low. It tells us that actually inflation is is low on the way down. It tells us that uh, we're creating jobs more than ever. I know I sound like President Biden right now, and that might reflect (laughs) the basic problem with democratic messaging. What it all tells me, Eric, is that people's intuitions are overriding their sense of rational of, of reasonableness uh, or rationality. And you write about this in your book, the difference between uh-huh. where uh, rationality resides, you know, in our, our prefrontal lobes and where intuition resides in our amygdalas. People are operating based on emotion. The other, the final thing I'll say about this is that there are some in politics who understand this better than others. And so issues like masks and issues like wokeism and in many respects, issues like immigration, those are messaging points. They're proxies that really do tap into people's suspicions, their intuitions, their fear, activate that fight or flight reflex and help create the, this um, this opposition, this sense of conflict, this sense of survival uh, based on people's emotions. Yeah, I, I, I think Steve kind of zeroed in right on it. I mean, you know, the brain science is how can you get the electorate's amygdala jacked up. (laughs) And so they're in fight or flight mode and they're operating from fear. And as you know, we know that once you're in a fearful state, everything you see becomes more fearful. You know, the branch on the ground starts to look like a snake. And that's just how the mind works and the fear centers in our our brain work. You know, and I think this is an important thing because to understand this, I think can be help us begin the journey of walking back from the brink here in that, you know, we are here because we, we had fear centers that helped us survive, you know, to make it this far, but our fear centers that reminded us of where the bear was or where the lion was or where, where dangers and threats were are now being manipulated daily, starting with, you know, talk radio, and then it was 24-hour news cycle, and now it's the algorithms on social media. And so it's like, can I get someone's amygdala jacked up? Because that's going to get eyeballs on my TV, and I'm going to be able to sell ads. I mean, it's that simple. And until there's a level of awareness by the average citizen that that's what's happening, then we're not going to be able to walk back from where we are now. We need people to be have a higher level of consciousness to be able to say, I see what they're trying to do. It doesn't mean I'm not going to watch the football game. doesn't mean I'm not going to watch them, you know, whatever, but I'm going to recognize when I am trying to be manipulated. And that's to me is one of the first steps we've got to take if we're going to get out of this. Well, let me ask you as, as Democrats here, and I'm, I'm a Democrat as well. And so it's common amongst Democrats to say, well, you know, it's the Democrats trying to offer policy prescriptions and real solutions to problems, whereas the Republicans, their dominant narrative is towards fear mongering and generating these stories that then people latch onto. Like the importance of fear and anxiety can't be overstated. I, I think of the story with my son when he was little and he was screaming about a monster in the closet and I came in and then we were we couldn't find the monster. And I said to him, Well, there's no monster. And he said, Well, Dad, if there's no monster in the closet, then why am I afraid? And, you know, I, I always think of that as a very kind of telling anecdote about, yeah, when, when we're afraid, we look for stories to rationalize and justify our fears. And it seems the Republican Party orchestrates an enormous amount of their content around tapping into those fears. I don't see that as much with the Democratic Party. So does that put the party at a disadvantage? And if, if the landscape is a, an anxious electorate that wants to rationalize this underlying, you know, intuition of that, you know, things aren't working, you know, everything's going to hell. What do, you know, what do Democrats do? What should Democratic leadership do to address this? How, how do you see as a, speaking as partisans, how do you see as a partisan solution to this? And then, then we can talk about nonpartisan solutions, maybe. Well, I'll jump in. I, I think part of the problem with the Democrats has been a failure to acknowledge the importance of emotional connections to to people and understand where they are. In the art of war, there's a principle of orthodox to extraordinary. 
and you meet people in the orthodox, you meet them where they are and you understand where they are. I had a guy tell me when I first started running for office, he's mayor of a small town. He says, people don't care what you know. They want to know that you care. And I think you look at, you know, Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or, you know, Ronald Reagan, or even to honestly, to a certain extent for his crowd is Donald Trump. People feel like those leaders cared about him and felt their pain is the famous Bill Clinton line. And once you do that, then you can lead them to go to the moon or defeat communism or knock down the, the Berlin Wall or whatever, because you have that emotional connection that's seared to the constituencies. And I just feel like too often, and it, and it was, it's around a lot of issues. I, I think first and foremost, Democrats take the bait. Uh, Democrats don't usually promote certain issues. Republicans tag them with that. And then the Democrats will get in a big fight about that. And then everyone's saying, well, the Democrats aren't talking about me and they're for all this other stuff that I'm not for. And, and I think, again, that comes out of the economic insecurity that people have, and they don't feel like the Democrats are fighting for them. Now, again, what President Biden did is historic. He's actually reindustrializing the United States. But the party and I think the president have lost that emotional connection to be able to go out and say, look, I know, you know, which to me is how this should roll is I know you're still suffering. I know gas prices are too high because they're operating from a sense of insecurity. And in where I'm from in Youngstown, Ohio, Akron, Ohio, where the steel mills closed, the rubber mills closed, auto plants have closed. Like even if you have a good job, you're still operating from a level of insecurity. And so you're looking over your shoulder. When's the next you know, shoe going to drop? Mm-hmm. And, and if you don't understand that, as you're just saying, no, the GDP is good then they're like, you don't understand where I'm coming from. And if you are perceived as not understanding the emotional state of the voters, you are screwed. And I think that's what's what we're seeing in some of the polling here, especially around the economic numbers and the polling. Tim, Tim is absolutely correct. And let me share an experience uh, that uh, that I had. Uh, I chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign <coughs> Committee for for two cycles, uh, which was the campaign organization with one mission, and that was to defeat Republicans and elect Democrats in the House of Representatives. And after that, then Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi asked me if I would be willing to do the following. She said, find a message for all the House Democrats, not 200 messages, find the one message that's going to unify us and work. And God is my witness. I said to her, well, I'll do that. But you have to find the place on the mantle where we're going to put the Nobel Prize for figuring that out. <laughs> it's going to be impossible. So we did a we did a two-year deep dive. And here's what we found, just building on, on Tim's points. Number one, Republicans speak, as he said, and as you have written about, Eric, Republicans speak to the gut. So taxes and spending. And Democrats believe that you can actually put footnotes on a bumper sticker. Uh, (laughs) Here's my 42 point plan, uh, you know, to make you feel better. Number two, the essence of messaging is not what you think, it's how people feel. Again, going back to that notion of meeting voters where they are. If you can't do that, you're, you're, you're just reading from talking points. You've got to understand where people, how people feel. Number three, we learned this, which seems like common sense, but it took two years to learn it. Look, when people feel good, when they feel secure, stable, when they feel they're making progress, they're open to progress. But when people feel like they're undermined, under assault, under attack, they revert to defense. They want protection. And the final thing I'll say in this, uh, and um, I don't want to engage in false flattery with my buddy Tim Ryan, is that there are examples of of Democrats who have understood that. One is Tim. Uh, Tim just astounded the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives because he was able to speak to Trump voters in Youngstown, Ohio. He figured out how to break those barriers, understand their intuitions. He did a masterful job of engaging, not just in message, message is a political term, but understanding where they were coming from and trying to, to lift them up. Another Democrat who understood this better than any Democrat I've ever met is Bill Clinton. Remember, you know, the thing that he got mocked about, but it was just so brilliant. He would say, I feel your pain. Not let me tell you what you need to know about unemployment, but I feel your 
pain. It's empathy. You've got to have that empathy. And then I'll give you two examples of the greatest uh, Republican messengers. One was Ronald Reagan, who did have kind of an empathy with voters who felt insecure, that they were losing ground, that they were under threat. And the other, forgive me for this, is Donald Trump. Donald Trump was able to tap into those anxieties in a completely demagogic, in my view, horrible way. Um, But he understood instinctively instinct and was able to tap into those anxieties. To this day, I hear from people, I know Tim does as well, who tell me, well, you know, I don't agree with him, but he's authentic. He gets me, understands me. And yeah. that is his Machiavellian brilliance. Yeah, there's the, the deep irony of that. Like, you know, he's telling it <laughs> as it is. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is like, wow. Like, okay, then, I mean, that that just says like, there's not reason that's, mm-hmm. that's you know, informing that comment. Right. Uh, Tim, I, I like I saw one of your commercials on, on the last cycle when you were, I thought this was a good one where you're throwing footballs and like breaking television. I thought that was, that was a good one. <laughs> and, and, I, and then my comment at the time was, you know, if you were a Republican, you'd be shooting them. Uh, but as a Democrat, you just throw footballs. <laughs> I mean, you know, Uncle Joe, you know, Biden there seems to have empathy. Why is is in this case is his empathy not working? Why is why is he having such a hard time connecting with the kind of voters whom we think he would otherwise connect to? Because it's being overridden by fear. A lot of this again has to do with 2008 and COVID. COVID is just a psychological hangover and a medical hangover that we're experiencing. But that sense of empathy, plus you know some other issues, are overriding that this sense of empathy that I think President uh, Biden exudes. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you know he's not been out and about as much. It sounds like that's a you know calculated decision from the White House. You know, and again, I think, and I took issue with this, you know, publicly from time to time, because I do feel like being a leader, being authentic, you have to sometimes tell your friends some uncomfortable views and opinions that that I had. And that was, you know, with the Bidenomics. I mean, the, the I thought that was a really big mistake. And it signaled, okay, it wasn't just a, a marketing mistake. I thought what it did was it signaled to people that he's not understanding their anxiety. And again, getting back to the orthodox to extraordinary, getting back to meeting people where they are, if people are feeling really insecure about the economy, then you putting your name on that is going to make them feel that you don't understand what they're going through. And then when you have that chasm, it becomes very difficult to be empathetic. I think that's one of them. And here's another example, too. And I think Again, when I mentioned Democrats, I feel like too often take the bait on some of these really weird kind of culture war issues that the Republicans start. Like Democrats will want to get in an argument about that. Now you're living in that space and you're not getting out an economic message or anything else. And I will say that if you walked into a room in in Youngstown, Ohio or Long Island or wherever, there's a bunch of working class people that are white or brown or black or men or women. They work in the service industry. They work in manufacturing, wherever. If you walked into that room and you start your first seven or eight issues were social issues, you know, that that had very little relevance to them in their lives, then they may even agree with you on some of those issues, which I think is important. Like they may actually agree with you, but you're not talking about the most important issue to them, which is how they pay their bills, how they keep their kids in school, how they pay for gas, how they pay for food. You look so bad, so disconnected, so, you know, deep and not understanding where they're at that you're screwed, you know. And again, they may agree with you on choice or immigration or whatever the issue may be, but you're you're not connecting to them where their minds and hearts are day to day. You know, as we like to say, those kitchen table issues. And that's such a problem. Well, let me segue from this. Because I think this this goes into this question that I really wanted to ask both of you, Tim. This is the first time you and I've met, but I've been a long admirer of yours, and uh, I, I like you know the book you wrote on mindfulness and sort of your approach towards politics as you know one of a kind of deep authenticity. And, and Steve, I've I've known you now for a while, and and as I just tell everybody, you're you're just a total mensch. But what I wanted to talk to you both about, and since this is ostensibly a, a podcast on how we know ourselves, which is, you know, I'm happy to talk about politics. That's my day job, of course. As a student of politics, I've always been fascinated with this question about how one 
sustains authenticity in in the public sphere and in, in political life. And it goes back to, you know, we know that voters are going to be responsive to phoniness. They're, they're going to be very sensitive to that. But at the same time, every, you know, everybody I know in politics has a political persona that they have to, you know, interface with people. And oftentimes that political persona can end up dominating them and, you know, compressing them. And so how do you, how, do, how does one live in in the public sphere yet you know not lose your soul well it's exceedingly difficult uh, look electoral politics is by its nature inauthentic uh, it is performative it is blue suits and red ties it is camera angles and sound bites and it is very difficult to break out of that bubble to transcend it one of the the, the real highlights that i had in my time in congress was actually meeting tim and studying him and observing what he was doing to bring members of Congress. He created something called the Quiet Caucus in the House of Representatives. Tim and I helped teach other members of Congress uh, how to meditate. We encouraged a, a kind of a leadership that didn't really focus on moving further to the left or further to the right, but transcending. You've got to find ways that lift you out of that inauthentic inauthenticity. Uh, and different people have different ways. It could be meditation. It's mindfulness. For me, it was meditation plus reading the Stoics, something that helped guide me through some troubling times. Tim and I are now working very closely together with several others to share those lessons from the battlefield with the next generation of, of political leaders. I think it's vitally important that we break out of the paradigm we're in now and share the lessons of mindfulness, meditation, stoicism, the stuff that Joseph Campbell has taught and uh, Robert Greenleaf and servant leadership. Those lessons are indispensable, I think, to bringing a healing to America and America's politics. I don't think you can like think your way out of this. I think it has to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I remember Jim Wallace, Reverend Wallace uh, from Sojourners, used to say, we, we don't need to go further to the left. We don't need to go further to the right. We all need to go deeper. And I just, to me, that's, you know, the meditation practice, like the different breathing techniques, you know, I'm like a hot yoga freak now, especially that I'm out of, uh, out of <laughs> office. And, but I used to, you know, try to do it at least once a week when I was in DC, you know, those practices that help you connect to what's deepest and best inside of you. And I think we have to, given, given all the stuff we talked about earlier, like, the algorithms and the the fear machine that's coming from every which way into our lives. I also think the food system and this processed food, we're learning more and more about how that screws up our stomach, our microbiome, and they're calling the microbiome the second brain and its effect on depression and mental health and all of that. And so the industrial food system, I think, is contributing to more and more of what's happening in our own minds. This start this really starts to pile up. You add in the economic insecurity, you add in school shootings, you add in what happened in Kansas City, what's happened in synagogues and churches all over the country. You that that starts to add up. And so, like my position is like, and I'll say this as clear as I can as a guy from Youngstown, you can't fucking ignore that. Like, yeah. what are you? We're gonna bury our head in the sand and pretend that like all of these things that we're living in our daily lives are not going to affect us. I mean, you see it now in deaths of despair, suicides, how young people feel. We see it in our politics, of course, because that's, again, downstream of culture. And so I think we need like a full frontal, not just for people in politics, but what are the techniques? You know, I mean, one of my first meditation teachers was John Kabat-Zinn. He said, we yell at kids to pay attention, but we never teach them how to pay attention. Like this stuff needs to be taught in our schools, how to eat, how to focus, how to be empathetic, social and emotional learning. How do you deal with bullies? How do you deal with, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to do school shooting drills in our schools, but we're not going to teach kids how to like calm their own minds to calm their own nervous system. We're not going to tell them that you know, eating a, a Rice Krispie treat and a thing of chocolate milk in the morning with absolutely a ton more sugar than you should have in the whole day. You have it before you even walk into your first classroom and you're doing that every single day or kids are eating out of the corner stores and, and food deserts like that. Eating that junk is not going to affect you. Like so what I think Steve and I have really clicked on is and this is, you know, obviously kind of a, an Eastern thought is to see things clearly. How do you how do you get through? You know, how did the Stoics help us get through the delusion 
get through the illusions? And what practices do we need? Whether it's a philosophical thing that you put on your mirror and you look at every morning to get you in the right mindset, or is it a meditation practice that you do, or is it the breathing and movements in yoga or the breath practice? Like we need to push this out through society really writ large. And I'll say, and I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago for a friend of mine, Richard Reeves, who started the uh, Boys and Men's Institute, American Boys and Men's Institute, about the trouble with young young men and men in general. And I wrote a piece about coaching. Like I've been so inspired by like sports leaders, sports psychologists, coaches who are just like Zen masters and players who have these routines. What are they doing? They're, they're, it's all about their mindset is, is as important as anything else that they're doing. And what they teach is really like the same as the Stoics are teaching. I mean, Ryan Holiday, who's promoting a lot of the Stoicism nowadays, and I know Steve sells a lot of his stuff in his bookstore. There's a reason why the New England Patriots in their heyday were reading his book, Obstacle is the Way. You know, there's a reason Michael Gervais, who's a best-selling author now, was with the Seattle Seahawks for eight years. They were in two Super Bowls. They were teaching and training mindset. And so why don't we just take that? Like, you want to talk about shifting the culture now that I'm on a complete rant. Um, you want to talk about shifting the culture. Like, who who resonates more with our culture than coaches and high-performing athletes, men and women across the board? So how do we as leaders, like, pull them into a broader role to help us in our schools, to help us in our workforce, and to help us, you know, in a broader society. Because if we don't start with that, you know, again, we're just, we're, we're, you know, bringing a knife to a gunfight by trying to just talk politics. Yeah. You know, that's, I think that's part of the same motivation for you know, the class I teach on this and the, this podcast was, you know, I was just encountering so many of my undergraduates here and, and these are just, you know, our highest performing young people are at, are at University of Chicago. I mean, and they're fantastic. They work so hard. They're super smart, highly motivated, and they were miserable. They were just racked with anxiety, with, you know, a lot of kind of self-destructive coping behaviors that I was seeing over in time. And I'm like, okay, you know, let's reevaluate this as sort of the price of success. And is there a, a, a different way of living and kind of living within the system that doesn't necessarily extract such a toll. But I, I'd like to go back then and ask you for for both of you. Okay, so you've been practicing meditation, reading Stoicism. We could talk more about that. I, I'm curious, have you do you have moments where you're public interfacing, you're say talking to a you know a bunch of voters or people and you're in you're in political life, and then you catch yourself and you're like, oh wait, I'm I'm in my shtick. And <laughs> how, how do you how do you how do you see your own how do you, you know, you know, recognize your own traps that you fall into because we all have those and we all you know tumble into them and what do you, what do you do in, in those moments where you see oh god I, i'm i'm in my thing well yeah, yeah. i'll t tell you Go a ahead. quick story my uh my great moment of liberation and freedom from the constraints of public life was after i left congress and i left uh, unindicted and undefeated which is a triumph <laughs> these days and my first speech after leaving, I happened to be at a synagogue in a place called Great Neck. Tim will appreciate this. Uh, one of my former constituents stood up and said, ah, Mr. Israel, because that's how we speak on Long Island. Ah, Mr. <laughs> Israel, you got some good deal now. You're getting your health care for life as a former member of Congress. You make your salary for life. You got a lifetime pension. And boy, what a, and we're paying for it. Now, before I left Congress, I would have listened and Again, turn to the data and try to gently correct this guy and not be embarrassed by a quote. But it literally, literally occurred to me as I was listening to him rant that I didn't have to worry about his vote anymore. And so I did a trigger warning. I said, ladies and gentlemen, for anybody whose ears are sensitive to inappropriate language, close your ears. And then I said to him, sir, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> and, 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 I learned a really important lesson, then, by the way, that I wish I had known when, when I was in politics. Pe you know, and then I said to myself, oh, my God, what did you do? Oh, my God, yeah, how yeah, could you yeah. say that? And and then people started cheering. And I thought that they were cheering for the guy. But no, they were cheering for me. And it took me a while to understand it. They love that inauthentic that uh, authenticity. Yeah. They love that I was telling them what I really meant. 
And then they started to say, oh, that's just Murray. Murray never has any idea what he's talking about. I went, thank, thank you for, for telling Murray off. And that's when I realized that, you know, the essence of, of responsible leadership is really telling people what you think and, and, and speaking honestly to the Murrays. Of telling, the, telling the truth. Well, if I could just intervene here real quick, because Steve, you and I have talked about this Edwin Friedman. And he was, uh, I don't know if you know him or not, uh, Eric, but he was uh, a rabbi who was a family therapist. And he began to apply family therapy to synagogues and churches and other, you know, leadership uh, positions. And he had some, he worked for HUD, I think, for a few years on some housing issues and lived in outside of DC. So he had like a political bent. So he was, he was trying to take family therapy, family theory, and try to apply it to broader society. And anyway, long story short is one of the ways he talks about it is that a virus cannot take hold unless there's a weak host, right? We we have viruses in our body. We have cancer cells in our body. We have all, but if there, if the host is strong, if you have a strong immune system, that the virus can't take hold. And so applying that to leadership is what exactly what Steve just did. Okay, I think the problem now is we talked earlier about the institutions here in the United States have been weakened, right? Mm-hmm. The respect for politicians, respect for church leaders, respect for, you know, whatever, Boy Scouts, Catholic, go, go through the whole list. Those institutions were kind of like the hosts of protecting wisdom, protecting integrity, teaching, you know, the skills and the worldview that you need to hold things together. There's a reason our country was a lot more together when Congress was filled up with 60 or 70 percent of veterans who fought in World War II, right? You had Dan Inouye and Bob Dole, Democrat and Republican, liberal and conservative, Hawaii and Kansas came together to make deals on the best interests of the country because they were Americans first. So my point is that what Steve did there was he although he wasn't a leader, he provided the strength of the host in saying, no, no, Murray, you're an asshole. Okay. And you don't know what you're talking about. And that is when, you know, you think about before the algorithms, before all the negativity, before we're operating from fear, all of that, which weakened the host of the institutions in the country, you said some of the stuff that people are saying today, you'd be laughed out of the room. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, there's the weirdos over there, yeah. right? That are like, you know, they're going to go, yeah, they're going to go invade the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah, good luck, buddy. You and your three but you and your three friends, you know? But now these institutions are so weak, plus the media, plus all these other events have strengthened the, the pathogens and made the virus stronger. And is with a weak immune system, you get a demagogue. That's how it unfolds outside of, that's how it unfolds in the body politic. And so you need leaders that are like, no, no, you're an extremist, regardless of the party. That's not where we're going. And that's kind of why we are where we are right now. A very weak immune system in the country. Well, I, I think for a lot of people, when they're approaching politics or they're in those kind of situations, it's oftentimes hard for them to know who they really are at their in, inside because, you know, we have these different persona, we have this ego and, you know, our, um, what I'm, I've been writing about the book is how, you know, our, our ego is basically this collection of psychological processes that's there to help us get what we want from other people. And I think what we mostly want from other people is uh, recognition, some admiration and love. And we learned at an early age, certain ego mechanisms, and we have an ego that gets built around that. And the problem with this is that our, these ego processes, and we have a lot of different ego processes, not just one, they kind of all come under one umbrella, but you know, we'll, we'll put on a different persona in the situation. And it's oftentimes very hard for us to know who we are at any moment because we're in a social situation and it's like, oh, well, I don't want to ruffle any feathers or I want to be polite or I want to be well-liked or, you know, I, or I want something else. I had some other ego need to, to be gratified. And it seems to me a lot of what, you know, both mindfulness and stoicism is about is learning to not be so compressed by those yeah. ego needs and so dominated by them. And so I'd be curious to hear from both of you how, how we how you think about an ego, particularly in this kind of public facing way. Politicians, by their very nature, have egos, and that's fine. That's the way it should be. You don't want somebody who doesn't believe that they can tackle world hunger and homelessness 
to be in politics, because what's the point? You want people who have a healthy view of themselves to be able to tackle these issues. Politicians, by their very nature, like the attention uh, and they want to be liked. The hard part is detaching yourself from elements of ego. It's okay to have a healthy ego. The hard part in politics is to figure out how to create a differentiation between pure ego and healthy ego. Uh, and that's what I love about Stoicism. And, and it just helped me immensely uh, beginning to read Marcus Aurelius, read his meditations, Seneca, Epictetus, Diogenes, who was the first Stoic to understand that the movement of Stoicism was just practical politics. And one of the things Stoicism teaches is that ego is the obstacle. Right. And so what you have to do is when you're in a disagreement with somebody, as I was with Murray, you have to be able to detach and ask yourself, OK, how much of this argument is based on my need for gratification versus a an honest disagreement? How much of this dispute is being fed by my ego, my wanting to be liked, my desire to be right and uncorrected? And can I find ways to put that aside for a moment? And A, see the other person's side, which is exceedingly difficult, particularly on the floor of the house, where you have one minute to make a point, yeah. right? Or on Fox News or MSNBC or CNN, where they'll cut you off after a minute if you're not breathing fire. But how much of this can I, can I just step back for a moment? Can I do three things? Number one, can I understand the, my perception right now, right? Am I perceiving this to be a, an, an existential threat? Am I perceiving this to be uh, highly problematic for me? And if it's just a perception and not substantive, can I let it go? Number two, how do I act based on what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing? And number three, do I have the will to approach this the right way? Th these are you know, among the many lessons of, of Stoicism is understanding the difference between perception and reality, understanding how to act in those cases, and making sure you have the discipline and will to remove yourself from the emotion at the moment and realize that not everything is existential. One of the struggles that I had, one of the, well, perhaps challenges is a better word, but no, these were struggles is, you know, I felt, my God, if I lose an election, I've lost, not just an election, but I've lost. Yeah. If I screw up on CNN or, or MSNBC, it's catastrophic. If my percentage in an election falls from my last election, it's about me. No, it was never about me. It's about the mood changed in the district or people were pissed off at me. And so I learned through stoicism how to heal my own ego, uh, how to kind of disregard uh, those kind of personal attachments and how to view things in a healthier way. I, you know, there's a group of senators right now that meet in the mornings to talk about stoicism. What a public service that is. If more members of the House and the Senate, more leaders in city halls and state legislatures would find the time to learn how to detach themselves from ego and find a higher purpose and apply their talents to solving problems rather than to defending their own innate positions, I think we'd all be better off. I apologize for pontificating and filibustering the way I just did, but I <laughs> no, think this great. is just essential. Yeah, I mean, the ego is a tricky thing. Um, like Steve said, it's, you know, you don't run for president, <laughs> be the leader of the free world without a little bit of an ego or, you know, but same goes for sports or being a CEO. So there is some value in that, it, but it, it is when it, it gets in the way, you know, and it can become the enemy. And I always tell young people because they they ask a lot about, you know, running for public office. And, you know, I, I was the youngest child. I had some success in high school sports and was on the front page of the paper. And I think I got a little taste of like, you know, feels good to have that kind of affirmation. But you know what? You throw interceptions, too. And guess what? Yeah. You're on the front page of the paper for the interceptions. <laughs> so I. I, I think I came in with a little bit of an understanding of like, yeah, this this cuts both ways here. So I tell young people who want to run for office, don't do it because you're looking for like someone to just stroke your ego, because that'll be some of your staff will as they talk behind your back. And then you're certainly, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be depressed and because you're gonna it's a it's a tough business. It's tougher than sports. Like you're getting hit left and right all the time and you will crumble inside you know and that's when i think you get locked into the performative and i think you see people saying exactly. and doing things now because it's it almost insulates you from 
the criticism. You know you're in your tribe and you know your tribe will protect you and you got to be with Trump so you don't have a primary and you're protected. And that's that's living hard in your in your ego. But I think these practices that we're talking about really do help you detach. They really do help you uh, disconnect. You know, and I think when you look at leaders that we respect, you know, even, you know, how President Kennedy behaved in such a detached way. I think even Reagan walking out on a deal with Gorbachev and ended up getting a better deal later because he had the. So the thing is, and I think this is kind of the, the culture shift that we have in the 60s. It was about we are dominating the planet now, Brenton Woods. It's our economic system you know, the dollar, all of this, right? We're going to the moon. Everything was outward. And I think the cultural shift that we need to have, I think that Steve and I are starting to try to, you know, plant a flag in the ground and say the next version of go to the moon is to go to the depths of who you are uh-huh. and get get past the ruminations, get past the, the fears that aren't there. There's a lot of legitimate fears that should not be made light of. But this, the constant, the con, go inward, go down, see the beliefs, see the internal conversation that, that you're having with yourself. And the social media piece on Facebook and this and that, I mentioned Michael Gervais, who's a buddy of mine and, and wrote a book, The First Rule of Mastery. The, the subtitle is Stop Caring What Other People Think. Like you're not going to be a master of anything if you're always worried about everyone else's mm-hmm. opinion of you. You have to do what you're here to do. You have to be tapped in. You have to raise your level of consciousness and you need to live in that space. And the great artists are the ones that get up and they just perform from the inside, the music that they perform. You know, I, I had a, I'm a big Dave Matthews band fan and I, I went to a lot of his concerts. And one time I was at a concert, he sings these songs, you know, he sings a song. I'm like, how does he sing? And I've seen him sing the same songs enough and enough over and over. I said, how does he sing the same song with so much passion and so much emotion? And I, I realized because the song meant something to him. Yeah. You know, he, he mm-hmm. wherever he was when he wrote that song was so deep in his DNA that he just tapped right into it and everyone could feel it. And there was no one having more fun at a Dave Matthews concert than Dave Matthews. <laughs> and, and that's because he's, and I think when you, you look at you know, Patrick Mahomes, just in his element, right? <laughs> With like the whole world, like, can he do it again? Yeah. He's totally inward, right? Calm. And it wasn't in his head. Wasn't worried about what anybody thought. He was living completely in the moment. And so politicians are very rare that that would have that, that skill set. And that's uh, just to pick up on that. That's, I think, part of the inherent problem with politics right now. Tim said you, ha- you can't worry about what other people think. But politics is poll driven. All politicians or m- most politicians, the only thing they're thinking about is what people think right. of them because they're reading the next poll. And one of the reasons that our politicians are so divided and Congress is so fractured and the country is so fractured is that people are just moving further to the left or the right. And it's showing up in polling. And many members of Congress and other elected officials are following those directions. There's got to be a better way. I talk about uplifting politics. Tim talks about going deeper, whether it's up or deeper. It's better than the continued breakdown of our systems and going further to the left and further to the right. And it all requires just inward thought, meditation, and understanding who you are. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this lately in terms of a lot of the like the campus protests uh, around the war in Gaza right now. And it struck me how much of our political idealism oftentimes gets very conflated with a kind of narcissism. So it's like, oh, I'm feeling this pain, therefore, you know, I need to act on it or I can change the world or the world should do what I want it to do. And politics is inherently a collaborative effort. So I'm curious how then we go from there's a there's there's always sort of the danger of narcissism in, in the com- our, the commitments to our own beliefs and yet the need to work with other people in those and I'm curious also how the two of you think about negotiating this difficult terrain of how do I know when I'm doing something that's you know meaningful and right versus how do I know when I'm being kind of narcissistic 
you get married and have your spouse tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's simple enough. They, they got the tuning fork, man. They know right when to just lay it in there. <laughs> You're acting like Murray, Steve. You're acting like that's Murray. That's right. There you go. Good old Murray. <laughs> I, I love a question with a very simple, straightforward answer. Yeah. <laughs> It's tricky. I mean, you know, I, I don't think we're we're here saying we, you know, have all the answers, but I we I think just having, you know, not being completely caught up in your job and your title and like immersed in that and you do have to have some people around you. I joke about, you know, spouses, but you do have to have a few people around you that are like, bro, you're like you're going off the reservation. You know, I, I liked not to bring it up, but like the the Travis Kelsey with Andrew Reed. I don't know if you saw that during the Super Bowl. And then he's on the podcast with his brother Monday. And his brother was like, bro, you were like way over the line. Like his brother basically, you know, ripped them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he was like, he was like, I know, I know. You know, he admitted it, whatever. But I think like that idea of like having a brother, you know, having a friend, having a spouse that can say you're going down the wrong road. And I think that's what's so scary is that we see so many politicians now that it's clear they're what they're saying isn't true. It's clear that they're doing it to preserve their own career. The flip-flops we see, especially with Trump, with people who hated them, disagreed with them, and now, you know, completely in bed with them. That's that's some people who are pretty wrapped up in their their ego, the title, the narcissism at very, very high levels. And again, I, I don't know any other way out of it than, than, than some of these, these practices and building those, that, that kitchen cabinet in your own life, people that help you through it. I think to build on that, uh, I, I think that is part of the big problem we have is that we used to live in a heterogeneous uh, culture where you could get a difference of opinion. You could hear dissent. Your neighbors could tell you when you were a jerk. Right, or you would turn on the news and hear a different perspective and say, "Oh, that's not the way I think," but that might, that may make sense. But now uh, we are living in an echo chamber world where very few of us hear that dissent. There is no gut check. There is no sense of, "Oh, that's a different perspective," and it's because of these algorithms on social media. So all we, if you're looking at your social media all day long. All you're looking at is you're right, you're right, you're right. We agree, we agree, we agree. And there's this new thing in politics, residential sorting patterns, where it's become so pervasive that we're literally starting to, we're making decisions on where we live based not on economics alone, but based on that's a red neighborhood, that's a blue neighborhood. That's a neighborhood where I'm going to agree with everybody. That's a neighborhood where I'm just going to disagree with everybody. Uh, and so this polarization has limited the opportunities for us to question ourselves, which is why we all have an obligation to every once in a while do a little gut check. You know, so if you are a progressive, hard as it may be to do, turn on Fox News. I'm not recommending it for more than 30 seconds, but turn on, <laughs> turn on Fox News. Find somebody with whom you disagree and hear them out. You may not find areas of agreement, but at least you will understand where they're coming from and you'll be forced to question your own assumptions. Um, and that's I, I, that's why I think, you know, because I was in Congress for 20 years, state legislature for two years. I worked for a congressman for two years. I have very much a kind of a political policy mindset of, so, you know, what do we what do you implement to fix this? And I think one of the huge issues that we have, to, I think we have to like move way up on the scale of what we need to do is some level of significant, deep and broad national service. We have to get people out of their neighborhoods and into somebody else's neighborhood. We have to get them out of their normal patterns. We've got in, in, in that level of, you know, whether you, you tie it to college or how, however you do it, or if it's a, something with high school, I don't know. I mean, I don't have the, the exact answer. But I think when you when you see the benefits of the greatest generation, you know, it was you had, you know, a Jewish kid, a Catholic kid, a black kid, a Protestant kid, all in a boat together and serving together in high conflict. And so when they came back, their leader who emerged from that generation, John Kennedy, was watching the civil rights issues and tough political situation at that point for him. 
but he had the guts to lead. And, mm-hmm. and so because people were members of the Kiwanis, they were members of the Rotary. They went to the Boy Scouts. Like the, it, there was this, those institutions were so robust. And then it became the Peace Corps and Vista and all of the stuff that emerged out of, out of that and into the uh, great society. So like we, we've got to, like, I think if we're going to shift the culture, we need some kind of big move towards getting people, you know, moving their cheese, as the book would say. And getting them out of the ruts that they're in. I was thinking about this. I was with my students this morning and we were in seminar and we were talking about satisfaction and pleasure. And I was talking, telling them how their social media and their cell phones trigger dopamine charges mm-hmm. and, 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 and they, beca- that's why they're so addictive and so compelling. And, you know, and then we go through this whole thing about what this is doing to them. We have this whole thing, you know, maybe step away from your phone. Why, you know, the phone is so compulsive. And sure enough, the first thing they do when class is over, all they do is pick up their phones. And <laughs> so, you know, even if we talk about this and, and I'm wondering, and I, I I really like the idea of national service. I think that's a, it's a great idea that we should have had, we should have had for decades now, but I'm wondering if, are there other kinds of measures that we might think about from the top? Like, so for example, is social media a problem? Do we need to regulate this much more? Is this really the source of what's causing a lot of our divisions? Is it, is, is it that simple? It is a major source, but very hard to regulate for a variety of reasons. But there are other solutions. And one solution, which has historic precedent and actually worked quite well, may be the basis for a, uh, a look at, at social media. We used to have as a an obligation for using the national uh, spectrum, a, a law called the Fairness Doctrine. Yep. Our net TV networks. And so it used to be that if you used the, the the airwaves in America to present news, you had an obligation to present both sides of a story. It wasn't just one opinion. You had to present a balanced opinion. That was an obligation that you had yep. as a network. And that worked pretty well because you did not have such a fractured, polarized, segregated opinion. Now, Ronald Reagan did away with the fairness doctrine. In fairness, President Obama had the opportunity to reinstate it and did not. I think it's essential for us to restore some civic engagement, some balance by reinstating the fairness doctrine. I don't want to show my age here, but I I remember growing up, I would go home, turn on the television news, and Walter Cronkite would tell me what was happening in Vietnam and what was happening with civil rights Now I could go home, turn on Fox News, and then switch to MSNBC. And not only are they reporting on completely different stories, but the stories they are reporting on is just nothing but opinion, nothing but bias confirmation. And so we've got to find ways of rebuilding bridges in our our media that present both sides of the story. And and I, I want to agree with what was said before. I think national service in some form is vital. I mean, there's a reason that we were cohesive. You had people who were going into the military, and thanks to Harry Truman, who desegregated the military, the person next to them could be uh, African-American, could be uh, Latinx, could be whatever. They learned that they were in common cause, that they were fighting the same battle from one country, from one United States of America. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the Grand Canyon. I was uh, walking around the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago when I came to the Bright Angel Trail and learned that the Civil Conservation, the Civilian Conservation Corps, as part of one of the Works Progress Administration projects under FDR, built a telegraph line. Uh, these were World War I veterans who were put to work building infrastructure. We need to do that again. We need a new Civilian Conservation Corps. We need to build those new bridges literally and figuratively to put Americans together again in common cause, pursuing a national mission in order to break down the segregation and the polarization that we're experiencing now. When you look at World War II, it's not like it was post-World War II. It wasn't like without any hazards or dangers that were there. I mean, clearly... Cold War and, you know, eventually Korea and all of that and civil rights. Like we had a lot of issues still brewing in the country, but there was a general mission of the country. We were going to be the leaders of the free world. We were going to oppose communism and we were going to work our best to try to integrate our society as difficult as that would be. But I think what we're talking about here with national service and fairness doctrine, these things, we had this big vision, you know, whether it was NASA or whatever. But then the government actually 
was providing opportunities for people, not just in the private sector with good union jobs, right. manufacturing jobs in places like Youngstown, but there was, you wanted to go help go to the moon, you go to NASA, you know, and college was affordable. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to go help the world, you could join the Peace Corps, right? You could go to Vista. Eventually you could go to legal aid if you felt like helping people with, you know, legal issues that they may have had. We had these paths that you could you could take your humanity and you could and, and your interests and what you were passionate about, National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, and you could, you know, move in these on these tracks in your own life. So you were helping the world, but you were also developing yourself and working towards, you know, that as well. The other piece I think is really important. I mentioned food earlier, which I still think is important in farming and agriculture. I think that could be a path for a lot of people, but rebuilding our downtowns. Like we have let Mm -hmm. the small downtowns, mid-sized downtowns, even in some, like completely fall apart. Mm -hmm. And in every one of these towns, there's a theater, there's a river that, that runs through it. There's a town square, there's a courthouse, you know, like we need a national rebuild of our small mid-sized downtowns, get housing, get people downtown together, music, art, these things that heal, these things that bring people together. And I tried to do that as a congressman with earmarks through the, through the uh, appropriations uh, bill with an amphitheater by the river. It took me 20 years to try to get the, the dams down in the Mahoning river so we could get kayaking and canoeing in there, but the dams were set up for the steel mills. And, you know, I won't get in a whole rant about working with the Army Corps of Engineers. <laughs> but the point the point is, try to create spaces, you know, where where people can can come together and, and live a healthy, good life. I think that the Netflix documentary that's out there now about blue zones, you know, and how this the blue zones are now trying to trying to go into cities and, and help cities set up in a way where you walk more, mm-hmm. you exercise more instead of just drive a car. You know, there's more community, more, more healthy food, that kind of thing. That's important. Like, and again, like you can't ignore the fact that in these small towns, there's no community hub anymore. In these neighborhoods, there's no community hub because we let the parks go to shit and the rivers are dirty and there's nowhere to go downtown. You know what else we need in downtowns, Tim? Tell me. More more bookstores. Bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> like Theodore's Books in yeah. Oyster Bay. Got to get the they, plug in, Steve. I, I got I mean, it. Totally Oyster, Oyster Bay, New York. Now, now my bookstore has an ego and yeah, self-promotion yeah, exactly. is vital. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to come it's on the pleasure. podcast. This was a great awesome. conversation and I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Keep up Thanks, the good work. All See right. you, Tim. Thanks. See you guys. If you feel like you're getting a lot out of our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, Then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network.